be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 13, we'll look at verses 18 through 30. Um, John 13, 18, 18 through 30, the text is printed in the bulletin for you also. Um, so people have walked away from some of us in very important relationships like marriages. Some of us have had spouses walk away from us and broken their vows to us. <clears throat> um, friends or family members have used us. People have left our church in ways that have hurt us personally. And uh, not only are these things past tense, and unfortunately we, we know the experience of these things, but people in relationships like these will betray us, um, painfully, in various ways. Betrayal is a terrible reality in this world, and it, it, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that it's a reality in a world like this. Betrayal shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes we see it coming, sometimes we don't, but even if it catches us off guard, and even though it hurts dreadfully, still at some level, we shouldn't be absolutely stunned or shocked or baffled or demoralized when we see betrayal, when we have people that we care about betray us. Um, betrayal is something that we should never want to do, we should never want to have done to us, uh, but we can see how it is lamentably a regular feature of this world, not the way it's supposed to be, but to be expected nonetheless. So. Betrayal, what do you do about that? What do you do about that? Especially when you know that you're called to love people, even to love your enemies, love people who would betray you. Do you withdraw into a protective shell? Do you become guarded? Stop having friends? Just be prickly and nasty and ward off people who might get too close? Uh, become a hermit? Cut yourself off from all relationships? Um, C.S. Lewis says in a book called The Four Loves, that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So he says that to love at all is to be vulnerable. So we're meant to love, which means to make ourselves vulnerable to very painful things like betrayal, personal betrayal. <clears throat> How can we do that? Why would we even want to do that? What good is there in it, in loving and making ourselves vulnerable to things like betrayal? Jesus knows all about this. He went through the worst betrayal, and he loved all the way through. And if we keep our eyes on him and see what betrayal meant to him, see how he made himself vulnerable and loved people like us, then it'll change the way that we live in this world. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we ask for your help now as we consider your word. We always need your help when we come to your word whether we admit it or not, but now we do admit it and ask for it. We need your spirit to come and um, change us from the inside out, make us the kind of people who are not willing just to hide away our hearts and our love 
uh, from people that might hurt us, but make us people more like Jesus Christ because he truly is beautiful and he is good and we want to be more like him. So we pray that you would use your word now to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped a morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So there's a quote at the beginning of the bulletin there for you from um, Bono, the lead singer, songwriter of U2. Uh, It's one of my favorite songs, um, Until the End of the World. And it's a song from Judas's perspective. It may not be the best theology, but it's a good song. Um, And it starts off this way. Judas is saying to Jesus, haven't seen you in quite a while. I was down the hold, just passing time. Last time we met, it was a low-lit room. We were as close together as a bride and groom. We ate the food. We drank the wine. Everybody having a good time, except you. You were talking about the end of the world. Um, Sorry, it's just running through my head, (laughs) the tune of it. I love it. Uh, In our passage here, when Jesus tells the disciples about the betrayer, he's making this prediction or this prophecy or talking about it. He is talking about the end of the world. That's a good title for that song. The God who is love, who out of the overflow of his love created the whole world as a place for love, created us in his image, especially for relationships of love with him and relationships of love with one another. Um, We betrayed him, and that's what sin is. Sin is a betrayal of this God, and it's our rejection of him personally. It's our rejection of his ways. Sin is an attack on God and on all his reality. So sin is the betrayal of love, and it has meant the end of the world. Everything came crashing down because of our betrayal of our sin. The the whole planet became a place of war and hatred and fear, not love, not anymore. And at the heart of it, the worst part of our betrayal is, is that it's a violation of our relationship with God. That's what sin is. Sin is nothing if it's not 
that, a betrayal of the God who is love. So humanity was meant to be as close together as a bride and groom with God. Eating the food and drinking the wine of merriment in our spiritual union with him. In fact, God makes this explicit throughout the scriptures. His people are meant to enjoy such deep intimacy with him, such spiritual union with him, that one of the best images to reflect this relationship is marriage. But all people, and worst of all, uh, his chosen people, have betrayed him in ways that can only be likened to adultery. And so you have that, that great and terrible prophet Hosea, um, whose life is ruined because he's called to be an illustration of God's love. Uh, God's prophet Hosea was instructed knowingly to take a prostitute as a wife, knowingly to take someone as a wife who would be faithless and betray him, commit adultery, as an illustration of the ways that God's people have violated our relationship to him. Hosea was told to love this woman and to open his life to her, to make himself vulnerable to her and have children with her, be completely intimate with her, to become one with her, knowing that she would betray him because she's a prostitute. Not just to illustrate how terrible we are, all of us, not just to illustrate the nature of our betrayal, but but in order that we would know God's love that comes to us even in the face of betrayal like this. That's the point of Hosea, is to know God's love that overcomes even that kind of betrayal. And, And this is the place Jesus willingly enters into here. This is the relationship that Jesus came into the world to have with us, to take the prostitute to himself and to love her and to overcome her with his love, opening himself up in vulnerable love, and it would be in the face of betrayal, deep, deep betrayal. And he talks about it, and he's not talking about it to complain like I would. Uh, He's not talking about it to get pity or to commiserate with other people who have gone through similar experiences. And he's not just talking about it like some neat party trick. Hey, you know what? I'm guessing here, or I predict. Let's see how this works out, and if I win, you got to follow me, right? Um, <clears throat> it's, it's not just a party trick. He's talking about it in advance for the good of the people that he loves, for the good of his chosen disciples. It says, the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's from Psalm 41 that Sam read in our Old Testament reading. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he or that I am. Using language of God's self-identification there, that you would trust that I am, that I'm God. He's predicting his betrayal by a close friend in order to show the fulfillment of the scriptures in himself and in his own life and in his relationship with this group of people, the church, so that we would trust in him as the one that we need, as the promised Savior and Lord, the one who was foretold his coming, and and to find comfort in the fact that these things happening to Jesus doesn't mean Jesus lost. It doesn't mean Jesus lost everything and his enemies have won when he's betrayed even to his death by his closest friends. We can find comfort in that. He says, basically, even even this betrayal has been part of God's plan. Trust me. It's going to be 
okay. Now, in another sense, of course, it is far from okay. This is, this is not okay. Um, it says in the very next verse, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It sounds like that was a really hard thing for him to think about and to say, even though we've seen betrayal in the world, even though we've experienced it ourselves, even though maybe we're familiar with this particular betrayal by Judas, and betrayal is a regular feature of our lives, it has to be said, this kind of thing is definitely not okay. That's what it means that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit, and it was, it was hard for him to talk about it. The thought of such personal betrayal was distressing to him. It brought him anguish. It brought him pain. So these things were real for Jesus. This was not, not just some script that he was acting out. These things are real for him, and they were horrible for him. He was facing a monstrous treachery, and in some sense we can say it was the end of the world. It was the end of the world. You must imagine how troubling it would be at this moment, having known all along that this one that you called, that you selected and, and called to come with you for about three years, to live with you and, and travel with you, you've opened your life to him. He would cut your he would, he would cut out your heart um, he would, in the most painful way. It's like sitting down to, um, just to help your imagination, sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner with your spouse and your family, knowing that your spouse's lover is waiting in the bedroom and that at any moment your spouse is going to get up from the table, slip out, and ruin your world. And just knowing that that's going to happen. Judas was going to bring down that kind of ruin on Jesus. His betrayal would be worse than what any unfaithful spouse has ever done because his betrayal, Judas's betrayal, is against the creator, against, against the God of love, against the God who's behind everything good in this world, uh, the God of love come in the flesh. And there's something about this, this whole thing that I'm not sure we can really imagine. Even if we've experienced deep betrayal, we can't really imagine it because Judas is part of God's plan of love all along. And that's what Jesus says. And this betrayal, this treachery is orchestrated and ordained by his father. And when Judas ruins Jesus, it happens for our salvation. And it's not because Judas was doing the right thing and he should be applauded for it. He's doing the worst thing. But, but the God of love ordained it. And he said it before his son, Jesus, as the path of greatest resistance to love. And Jesus chose to walk this path of absolute vulnerability and absolute intimacy. Like John, uh, Joe likes to say, uh, intimacy is into me, see, right? Jesus has opened himself in every way to this man who's going to betray him. Absolutely, and he's absolutely rejected. And it's the path of greatest resistance, and he's willing to go it in order to conquer all of our sin with his love. So in a way, Judas is representative of all of us, all sinners. In his actions, he sums up the enmity. He reveals the kind of enmity that the the whole sinful human race has against our good God. He shows us what we're like, and he acts on our behalf in some ways. We're all betrayers. We've all already betrayed God and his love. That's what sinners do by definition betray God. We each have the capacity to continue to betray him and to continue to betray each other to sin in the worst imaginable ways. We all have that. Each one of us has that capacity. So when Jesus points out 
that one of his disciples will betray him, it, it just shouldn't be that big of a shock to people who understand what sin is and who know themselves to be sinners. And in fact, I think the disciples have a great response to Jesus here in verse 22. It says the disciples looked at one another, and you can sort of hear the crickets chirping in the background, uh, uncertain of whom he spoke. And they, they trust his words, they believe his prediction, and it causes them to doubt themselves. They doubt themselves, and that's good. They're basically saying, we don't know what to say. It could be any one of us. They're not just pointing the fingers at each other, right? Matthew, when he records this in Matthew 26, says, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? How terribly honest is that? But that's what we bring to the table. Cosmic betrayal. I guess that could be me. I'm, I'm not sure if that's me. Is it me? <laughs> Self-doubt, right? All of, all of Jesus' disciples know that they have the capacity to betray Jesus like this. Somewhere inside, he's exposing that to all of us. And our security in our relationship with Jesus doesn't come from believing, I will never betray Jesus. He calls that out when Peter talks like that. That's not where our security comes from in thinking that I'm going to love Jesus to the end. I'll never betray him. Our security in our relationship with Jesus comes from knowing the fact that he's chosen us in spite of our sin and that he's loved us and made himself vulnerable to us for our sake, even though we're the kind of people who betray him to his death, just like Judas. Our security is in his love, and that's his amazing grace to us, and we can find rest in that. We can find real peace in that. Uh, it says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Literally, that is in his bosom. It's very intimate language. And he's in such a position, the way that they're sitting at this table, that he can sort of roll over backwards and be leaning on on Jesus' breast, it says. Um, So one of his disciples whom Jesus loved uh, was sitting at his side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus was seated in the highest place of honor at the table. The second place of honor was at his left. The third place of honor, in a sort of regular pecking order of things, is at his right, where this beloved disciple sat, John. Right? John talks about himself that way in this gospel. Um, and I think it's to emphasize that his identity and his security doesn't come from the fact that he's the one who loves Jesus, but it comes from the fact that Jesus is the one who loves him. Right? He isn't the disciple who loved Jesus who would never betray Jesus. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, whose life is defined by that, who rests in that, whose identity is established in that. And so John was enjoying this proximity to Jesus in the third place of honor. In the third place of honor. Maybe you're asking the question then, good question to ask. Who's in the second place of honor? Who's sitting at Jesus' left side, within reach of Jesus? It was his betrayer. 
in the greatest place of honor there. Aside from Jesus, this is a close friend that Jesus had honored by washing his feet just a few minutes ago. The close friend that Jesus had honored by finding the best morsel of bread, picking it out and serving it to him. And Jesus treats his betrayer as his honored guest, and he shares his best with him. He doesn't publicly shame him. He doesn't take remedial action against him. He doesn't poison his food. He doesn't get stingy. He doesn't withdraw from him. He doesn't mutter under his breath against him. He continues to welcome his betrayer, to open his life to him, to invite Judas to participate with him in everything. Everything. And he knows what's coming. And he knows what has to come. And he loves. And as strange as it may sound, it's probably that very love that hits Judas like the last straw. And he can't take it anymore. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. So his heart and his thoughts finally turned fully against Jesus to betray him to his death right at the very point of communion with Jesus. It's the darkest sin that sees God in all of his glorious goodness and revolts against him. And that's the end of the world. That's the end of the world. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that Jesus, that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Giving somebody to the poor would be sort of a normal thing to do at a, at a feast like this. Um, <clears throat> so to me, it seems good again of the disciples not to see betrayal in Judas, <laughs> right? Um, I might have been cynical and suspicious We've just been talking about betrayal, and here now Judas is doing something out of the ordinary, and I bet Jesus is talking, I bet Judas is the culprit, I bet he's up to no good, but actually they seem to give him the benefit of the doubt, Uh, even though they've just been talking about the one who would betray Jesus, he's probably just going for groceries, we need something for the meal, or um, he's going to go take care of the poor, that's ascribing pretty good intentions to him. Maybe they're really superb at imputing righteousness to sinners. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're naive. They just couldn't imagine that the one at the place of honor showed every kindness by Jesus would go betray him so coldly. That just does not compute. Really, it makes no sense. Sin makes no sense. We just do it. Whatever the case, apparently Jesus wasn't... uh, broadcasting his betrayer's identity and calling everybody's attention to it and say, stop him before he gets out the door or, uh, you know, so that his disciples would gang up on Judas and take him out before he does his worst. He let his betrayer go, which would mean his own death in a few short hours. That's what it would mean. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. John isn't just recording the time of day for us. We can sort of assume the idea that they're sitting down for dinner. It's evening at least. So um, he's saying something metaphorically. He uses the themes of light and dark. Uh, 
throughout his gospel. He's saying that darkness has fallen and the time has come for evil things to creep out and do their hideous work. The death of the Son of God was imminent now. If Jesus hadn't foretold these things, if we didn't know that this darkness would lead to the cross, then ultimately to the triumph of God's love and our salvation, then this betrayal would absolutely overwhelm us and there would be only despair, only hopelessness, if Jesus hadn't called attention to it beforehand. But because of the whole gospel, including not just the crucifixion but the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus, we can see that betrayal isn't, isn't really the end of the world. Not in the utter, utterly hopeless way that we might have thought of anyway. It's the end of one world, maybe, and the beginning of a new. And we can see that it wasn't futile for Jesus to love his betrayer. He gave this guy everything. And we would have just said, why you waste your time on him? He's just going to hurt you. But it wasn't futile. It was the most beautiful expression of his love. The most beautiful expression of his goodness, of who he is. He took the path of greatest resistance to love. And his love wins. His, his goodness, his love is the final word for those who trust in him. It's his love, not our betrayal. And this means something for us, I think, the times that we face betrayal. I think this is one of the reasons why this is included for us in the Gospels and why Jesus talks about it with his disciples beforehand. Um, it means something for us when we face betrayal, personal painful betrayal. And I'm not just talking about just disagreeing over things with your friends or your family that you might feel strongly about and people are getting angry. And I'm not talking about the self-pity of imagined slights. I'm not talking about getting a bruised ego or the discomfort of having faithful friends confront you about your sin, which is painful. And I'm not just talking about when people can't stand you because you're insufferable, or you've driven people away by abusing your relationships with them. That's not their betrayal of you. It's fairly obvious that love ought to control these scenarios. I'm talking about times when you've shown Christ-like love to someone as faithfully as you can, and they stab you in the back, or they desert you, or they break their vows to you. I'm talking about times when you've been leaning into the relationship and others have pulled away when they should have stayed true. They should have. Terrible as it may sound, um, these are actually times when Jesus has given us the privilege of identifying with himself. The privilege of identifying with himself. That's how our salvation works. After all, Jesus has identified himself with you so that you may identify yourself with him and not just with his righteousness abstractly. He's not just giving you the privilege of the imputation of his righteousness and identification in that sense in some abstract way or only. He's giving you the privilege of identifying yourself with him in his whole life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension into glory. Salvation means that he grants you to participate in his own life and in his own love. To come to know him more deeply through experiences like his. And the big, the big payoff is coming to know him. 
in experiences like his. In Philippians, Paul says that all of life and even death is about Christ. It's about gaining Christ, drawing closer to Christ, that he just wants to know Jesus, even if that means suffering like Jesus and a death like Jesus's, becoming like him in his death so that he might know Jesus in the power of his resurrection, so he might know Jesus. Not just the power of resurrection, but Jesus. So I can know what it's like to be him. The more we share in Jesus' experiences, the more we know him. And that's the terrible and glorious part of it. If you want to know Jesus, then you will know betrayal just as Jesus knew it. You'll know persecution. You'll know suffering just as Jesus knew it. You'll know betrayal. And by his spirit, you will be sustained to love like he loves, even in anticipation of such treachery. Your friend will lift his heel against you unjustly, and you might see it coming. Your loved ones will hurt you undeservedly. Your brothers and sisters in the church will walk away from you or scheme against you or drive you out. And in all of this, your eyes will open to what we've all done to Jesus. He loved us anyway. And you will come to know good and evil, to be able to discern between those things, and you'll know Jesus, best of all. You'll know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the great honor of our suffering like him. So John Calvin said, What Christ suffered, who is our head and pattern, we who are his members ought to endure patiently. And indeed, it has usually happened in the church in almost every age that it has had no enemies more inveterate than the members of the church, and therefore, that believers may not have their minds disturbed by such atrocious wickedness, let them accustom themselves early to endure the, the attacks of traitors. This isn't just a call to see betrayal around every corner. But the reality is, it's a reality for us, and especially in the church, unfortunately. And we can go through it with Jesus like Jesus. So don't withdraw from those who would hurt you. Don't become guarded and prickly and hermit-like. Don't despair utterly. Don't be demoralized when people betray you. Trust in Jesus and love them in his name and open your life to them and make yourself vulnerable to them just as Jesus has opened his life to you and made himself vulnerable to you. It is good and right and beautiful and it's never futile because you'll see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to pray against any such thing as betrayal in our lives, that, that we would ever betray you or each other ever again, or that anybody would betray us. We pray against it. We hope that it will never come. We pray that you would come quickly and overthrow all such things and replace them with your love and your kingdom. And until you do, we pray that you would sustain us, make us to know your great faithfulness to us. Your faithful love endures forever. You've never left us. You've never betrayed us, even though sometimes some of us might accuse you of that. It isn't true. You're good and you're faithful. And we pray that um, you would help us by your Holy Spirit to trust in you, Lord Jesus, 
as our Savior and as our pattern and as our friend, the one with whom we might walk through any such personal betrayal. Uh, These things in our lives probably pale in comparison to the betrayal that you endured, that you faced, and yet you stayed true. We pray for your help that we might stay true, that we might love you and one another in the face of all betrayal. We pray in your name. Amen.